Good morning again. Uh, our, this morning's gospel lesson is from John 20, uh, which is John's account of what happened on that first Easter Sunday. We're going to look at verses 11 through 18 together, which picks up about halfway through uh, what happened in the early morning hours on that day. So I'll read that for us now, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from John 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would use this word that we have read and heard together to show us the word who became like us, who, who bears our flesh even now at your right hand. Meet every single one of us in the places where we are, in faith or out of faith, those who feel close to you, those who feel far from you, those who are in doubt. Father, meet every one of us where we are and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray it in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, this is, uh, this is the time of the year that we do staff reviews uh, here at the church. Um, I don't know how you feel uh, about reviews. I know some people really like them. Other people uh, kind of dread them. I, I don't mind being reviewed, actually. It's the reviewing of others that I have to do that always gets me. It reminds me every year that I could be a much better supervisor uh, than I am. Anyhow, to make that process more pleasant for everybody involved, uh, I always let whoever I'm reviewing pick a place to go for lunch, and we do the review over a meal. It just seems like that's a more pleasant experience for everybody. So this year, um, one of the other pastors picked uh, an unusual spot. Uh, I don't want to embarrass him, so we'll just call him Jeff S. Of all the the fine, fine restaurants in our great city. Jeff S. picked the Taco Bell on Milwaukee Avenue in Wicker Park. I don't, I don't pretend to know all of the logic that went into that choice. I don't know all of the reasons behind that choice. I just know that we ended up eating lunch at Taco Bell. Now, we sat by the window there on Milwaukee Avenue, and a few minutes into our lunch, we started, notice something, started noticing something kind of strange happening. About 90% of the people that walked by us on the sidewalk stared at us. 
It wasn't, it wasn't obvious staring. It was the kind of staring that you do when you don't want to be caught staring. Right? People would look at us and then they'd quickly look away. And then as they walked past, right when they felt like they were out of our line of vision, they would turn and strain to look at us again. It happened over and over again during that meal. It was really unsettling at first. And then by the end of the meal, it was just kind of absurd and funny to us. And I don't know exactly why it was happening. I mean, maybe, maybe people were just surprised that two grown men were having a meal in Taco Bell. <laughs> but it seems more likely that it was a case of mistaken identity, that people were thinking that they were seeing someone else, someone maybe even famous. Maybe they thought they were seeing Jeff Bridges and Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> That's what we like to think. But the truth is, it was just us, you know, me and Jeff S. <laughs> and I bring this up because of the beautiful moment that is at the heart of the story that we just read together. It is a case of mistaken identity. When Mary sees Jesus first that morning, she thinks that he is the gardener. Now, she's wrong about that, of course, and she figures that out soon enough. But there is a sense in which she is deeply right. There is a sense in which she is onto something because there on the first day of a brand new creation, she is looking at someone who brings flourishing and beauty out of chaos and disorder. On that first day of new creation, she is looking at someone who uproots weeds and plants new life. Gardner is a pretty good image for who Jesus is and what he does for people like you and me. And I hope we meet him with Mary this morning. So John starts by telling us that Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. Now the truth is that was not her first visit to the tomb that morning. It was her second. At the beginning of the chapter, John tells us that Mary Magdalene had already come to the tomb that morning while it was still dark. And even though John doesn't mention it, we know from the other Gospels why Mary was there. She had come to care for Jesus' body. Mary had been there when Jesus died. It was late on a Friday, right before the Sabbath started. There was only enough time to quickly get his body into the tomb, but not enough time to care for it in the way that would have been customary. So now she has come back to the tomb as early as she possibly could to carry out that one last act of love and devotion for someone that she loved so much. And it never fails to strike me that, that that's what she was doing that morning. She had come looking to care for Jesus' body. And it's striking to me because Jesus taught many times that he was going to die, and on the third day he would be raised. He said this a lot, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'll be raised. I'm going to die, and, and three days later I will rise. But Mary isn't excitedly coming to the tomb that morning to make sure that it's empty. She is sure that it won't be. And none of the men, the disciples who had followed Jesus and, and laughed with him and cried with him and ate with him and talked with him every day for the last three years, none of them are there at all that morning. They're hiding in locked rooms, not out checking to see if Jesus was right about what he taught, because just like Mary... They're sure that he wasn't. 
We sometimes like to tell ourselves that ancient people were gullible, much more open to suggestion that they'd believe any old thing, even about someone being raised from the dead. It's the credulity of earlier ages that Updike speaks of in that reflection at the beginning of the order. The problem is that all of the evidence of the Gospels says that that just isn't true. They were a skeptical people too, and they did not believe until they did. Which begs the question, what in the world would make someone who didn't even have a category for someone being raised corporally from the dead, what would make them say, look, I know this sounds crazy, but it's true. I can only think of one thing, that they must have seen the evidence that changed their categories forever. They must have seen the risen Jesus like the New Testament says they did and touched him and ate with him and talked with him. And I say that just for those of us here this morning who may be a bit like Mary or a bit like the disciples were that first Easter Sunday morning. Skeptically thinking, maybe even cynically thinking that we live in a closed world where what we see is what we get and that's it. Something changed their minds. And nobody in the Gospels and nowhere in the New Testament letters do people talk about the resurrection of the Jesus as a hopeful metaphor. Nowhere does it get talked about as a lesson about the ability to remake ourselves or anything like that. And I guess I'd humbly say that if that's the kind of thing that we have come looking for this morning, we may be more like Mary than we thought, looking for something that just is not there. So she went there in the early morning and she finds the stone rolled away from the tomb. This is deeply unsettling to her. So she runs and tells the disciples that someone has stolen Jesus' body. Peter and John race off to the tomb with Mary trailing behind them and they find it empty. So they just go back home. But Mary, disconsolate with grief, she stays behind weeping outside the tomb. Her grief, her grief is the grief of someone who has come face to face with the madness and the chaos of death and all of its tendrils in our lives and in our world. Her grief is grief over violence, like the violence of terrorists in Beirut or Belgium or Turkey or the Ivory Coast. Her grief is like the grief over the violence, that tendril of violence that continues to grow unabated on the streets of our own great city. Grief over racism, grief over the loss of human dignity through trafficking and exploitation, grief over the loss of human dignity through the commodification of every last part of our lives. Grief over that tendril of addiction that has a death grip and it's alienating everyone around you. Grief over the pain from past abuse that rears its head when you least expect it and paralyzes you or causes you to lash out in anger. Mary's grief is grief at the loss of someone she loves, which in turn is a witness to the loss of a world that had been created for so much more and a people who had been created for so much more. It's the kind of grief that people like us feel if we allow ourselves, if we remove the things that we put in our lives to insulate ourselves from it. That's Mary's grief. So she stoops 
and looks into the tomb. And the question is, who has an answer for that kind of grief? She's so troubled that even the presence of the angels doesn't faze her. I mean, normally when people see, see angels, they freak out. But Mary is completely unfazed. They ask her why she's crying. And her response is to repeat that grief out loud for the second time this, that morning. Someone has taken away my Lord's body and I don't know where it is. Who has an answer for that kind of grief? But then Mary turns and she looks back out of the tomb and in the dim early morning light she sees Jesus standing there, only she doesn't know that it's Jesus. And Jesus does what he always does, which is to meet people like us exactly where we are. He moves towards Mary. Like the angels had, he asks her, why are you weeping? And then he gets to the heart of the matter with that second question. Who are you looking for, Mary? (laughs) Now, I guess it goes without saying that Jesus doesn't need Mary to answer these questions. He knows the answers to these questions, and Jesus does this pretty often. He asks people questions for which he already knows the answers. But these are the right questions because they are the questions that move towards Mary, that meet her in the place of her grief and her pain. She's weeping because someone that she loved has died. She's weeping because the last time she saw that person was when he was being placed into a tomb and now his body is gone. She is weeping because she thinks that death is doing that morning what it has always done, getting the last cruel word on everything. Death is the end and that's that. There's nothing more to say. The only thing left to do is weep. But of course the beautiful irony is that she is seeking the one who is standing right in front of her asking those questions. She can't see him yet because she hasn't figured out that she woke up that morning in a very different world than the one she had gone to sleep in the night before. She thinks this guy is the gardener. And she says, look, if you're the one who carried him away, just tell me where he is and I'll go get him. It's a case of mistaken identity, kind of. (laughs) You might remember that the story Scripture tells about God in this world begins in a garden. It begins in a garden, and and that garden was placed in a world where exactly everything is as it should be, where the web of relationships between God and humans and the created order are filled with peace and filled with unbounded joy. But you might also remember that in that story, Adam, the one who was the first gardener set to tend that place, chooses to go his own way and play God. And this sin causes something to land in that garden and something to land in that world that was never supposed to be there. Death and all its thorns and thistles and angry tendrils that wind around everything good and deface it. That's the story that Mary was living in that morning. That is the fountain of her grief and the fountain of ours. But then there is Jesus. As St. Paul calls him, the second Adam, standing in the garden alive. His resurrection was the first day of a brand new creation, one in which death's stranglehold over everything has been defeated. 
because he had fully entered into our human condition and our human situation. And on the cross, he had taken all of the collected sin and misery of the world on his shoulders in order to drain them of their ultimate power. And in his resurrection, he dealt a mortal blow to death itself. He is the better gardener. (laughs) Clearing out the weeds of sin and grief and pain and violence and addiction and isolation and sowing the harvest of forgiveness and joy and peace and healing and restoration and flourishing. Remaking the world into the place that it was created to be and remaking people like us into the people that we were made to be. This is the unbounded grace of new creation that Jesus offers to people like us and we grab hold of that life by faith in him. Now, Mary can't see this, but she's about to because Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And that's all that it takes. She has been lost, but now she's found. She had been blind, but now she sees. She cries out, teacher, and she falls on him in elation when she hears her name on his lips. And it's worth asking this Easter morning if we can hear the risen Jesus graciously speaking our own names, calling us to see and to believe. For the first time, maybe, or for the hundredth, calling us to enter into the joy of his new creation. And I love how this story ends. It is such a beautiful image to consider. I mean, Mary has moved from the deepest of human grief to the highest of human joy, and she has no plans to move on from that moment at all. She is clinging to Jesus, and you can't blame her. I always like to imagine that the next words that Jesus say, he can barely get out because he can hardly breathe because she's holding on to him so tight. Don't cling to me, Mary. Because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Mary, you're going to have to let me go because there are things that still need to be done. This is the first day of new creation and there is much to do. And in a million years, in a million years, Mary could have never imagined that the first human work of new creation would be given to her. The first job is hers. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus gives Mary the job of being the first herald of the resurrection. And church, this is always how it is for those who believe. Easter is never only about that moment with the risen Jesus, as beautiful as that is and as important as that is. Easter is always also about the work of new creation that Jesus graciously hands over to us. He gives people like us the work of gardening with him, of tending this place, of making his gracious rule in this world more and more present by our own words and by our own work in this world. We are called to be heralds of hope in a world that is deeply in pain. Messengers of the grace of the risen Jesus tangibly and concretely making that grace present all around us. And so it's also worth asking this Easter morning what our own 
particular work is. What is your work? What is mine? And how can we more faithfully carry it out? Let's follow behind the risen Jesus as he works new creation in us and all around us. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let me pray. Father, cut through whatever you need to cut through in our lives so that we can hear our voice being called. Remove whatever it is or add whatever you need to add so that we can hear our voice on the lips of the risen Jesus to to see and to believe. And then help us to hear and work to figure out what our task is, planting the resurrection everywhere around us. Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.